We live in a fantasy world now. Reality has been destroyed. This is the time that we really need to pay attention. The probabilities are overwhelmingly on gold's side. That is the best environment to see gold increase its value. Welcome to Palisades Gold Radio. I'm your host, Tom Bodrix. Joining me today is Dave Kranzler from Investment Research Dynamics. He's also the author of the Mining Stock Journal and Short Sellers Journal. Dave, thanks for joining me again. Um, thanks for having me on again. It's always a pleasure. Absolutely. We we had a good a good warm-up this morning with our pre-chat, and I'm sure we'll touch on some of those subjects here. But I think a place I'd like to start is to get your take. Since you're the first interview that I've had since the Tucker Carlson interview with Putin. So how do you see, let's say, the importance of that interview and also what the message that he delivered was? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, my personal belief is that that was bona fide journalism. And that's the type of journalism that all these media outlets should be practicing. And I know he he said, you know, ahead of time, his part of his premise was, you know, we hear what, you know, we hear all these interviews with everyone in the West, but none of these media outlets have actually gone over there to interview him. So the only thing, the, you know, the, the only perspective we're getting from their side of the story is our reporting of, of, of the perspective. It's propaganda, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, I, I, thought, I thought it was an awesome interview. I, I know it kind of went in a different direction. Uh, for the first half than Tucker wanted it to. Mm-hmm. Um, I enjoyed the history lesson, quite frankly, that Putin laid out. Um, but, I, I, you know, I think, you know, whether, you know, it, it's impossible to know whether or not everything Putin said was the truth or not. But, you know, I've read enough. I've read enough about the entire situation. I've watched it unfold to know that, you know, most of what he was saying about how the whole situation developed starting in, for me, it was 2014. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and he, he takes it all the way back to 1991, which I think is valid. But I, I think most of what he talked about or have said, the assertions he made, I think they're actually true. And, you know, for what I think is, is that there's probably a material percentage of people in this country that look at him and say oh none of it none of it is true right and and so um i i think if you've if you've kind of looked at the whole thing thoroughly and you know at least since 2014 you realize the way this whole thing went down and his decision to go in there to defend his people in ukraine and to defend his borders it's it's all true. It's, it's the facts. So I think that Carlson, in a different era, if this was the 1960s, 1970s, he'd be up for some some type of journalistic award. I don't know if that's the type of thing they would um, award a, a Pulitzer for. I think they do, but for sure he should be getting journalistic awards for this. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be a fairly large percentage of people that are going to, you know, criticize him and excoriate him when he gets back here. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it just kind of speaks to how polarized our entire society has become. I, I, I haven't seen any polls on how it was received, but I'd be curious if, if an unbiased organization went out there and actually did a poll, 
I don't even know how many people watched it, but I bet it was pretty widely watched. Well, I was going to say, if we just look at the metrics of how many people watched it, I, I think the last the last count before the weekend was over 140 million. Wow. So to to see how much interest there actually was in what Putin has to say by, you know, if you want to call it the people of the West, I think is a great indication of the actual appetite for that information. You know, I don't, I believe I saw it was, it's been four years since Putin has basically given an interview. So for him to give the interview to somebody from the West and have it be watched that many times, I think is a, is a really interesting indication. And, you know, you and I were kind of speaking before we hit record here this morning about the idea that you can basically go anywhere on the internet now and find any viewpoint to validate any opinion you might hold, whether that's, you know, the, the craziest thing you can, can imagine, you know, flat earth or whatever you want, whatever you want to say. And I think that that ends up being a real issue in society because we're not, it's so difficult to get an objective view of what is actually happening in the you know mainstream media you get the spin on it there are forms absolutely that need to be acknowledged of alternative media that have a completely different spin the other way right and so to be able to have you know an hour and a half two hour discussion where you can go back and go through what the the leader of this country that led the offensive into ukraine is actually saying and what his thought process is, I think is is a really valuable piece of journalism. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, what, what blows my mind is that there's, you know, and it's mostly, I, you know, the Democrats, but no one looks at what Valerie Newland did over there in 2014 as a, as a coup. They thought it was a free unrigged election, but the U.S. put their guy in there for the purpose of moving NATO into into Ukraine, right? It's, it's in the underbelly, right next to the. It's in the underbelly of Russia, basically. Mm-hmm. And you know, as Putin pointed out back in 1991, they promised that. I think it would have been. I don't know if it was uh, George Bush Senior directly, but either him or his representative said, "We're not going to move." NATO forces into Ukraine. And yet, here we go. You know, mm-hmm. the, the the coup in 2014 gave us the excuse to do that. And who, who are we kidding? NATO is basically the US, right? <laughs> with 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 its lapdog Western European countries involved. So and it's if you just look at a map, it's clear what what the US is trying to do. They're trying to to surround Russia on all sides, except for they won't be able to on China the Chinese side, um, you know, for the purposes eventually of, I would assume, trying to launch an an offensive military operation into Russia. And so, I mean, how can you blame Putin for wanting to defend himself? And he could have gone in there and completely steamrolled that entire country, you know, turn it into pavement. And he didn't. Mm -hmm. You know, he basically went in there. He defended Russia's ownership of Crimea, which is, you know, historically seated. And he went in there into the southeast 
provinces to defend the Russian people. I mean, like Putin said, and people don't believe that, but you know it's true because you saw accounts of it in the alternative media. They were bombing those people. They were bombing civilians mm-hmm. in, in, in southeast Ukraine. And it's like, how can you let this happen? Well, and I think that the broader idea that ideally we should be working together with Russia to be able to coexist rather than have these tensions, I think is you know, a much more admirable goal rather than, you know, moving into their borders and trying to justify it by whatever goal you want to say needs to happen, right? He made the point about the denazification of the Ukraine as well. And I think that was an interesting and important point. That's not to say that war is the answer and that Putin was, you know, completely justified in these actions. But, you know, when you put the leader of a country like that into that position, and repeatedly he has warned you against that, and going back to the agreement that they had before that, you can see where he's coming from. Yeah. Well, you know, speaking of, you know, the the, the Nazi element over there, I, I, I mean, I just chuckled at People in the United States putting you in their window of their, you know, their house, mm-hmm. or putting the the Ukraine flag emoji in their in their social media profile, and I was just thinking to myself, do you realize that a major element of what you're in support of over there are neo Nazis? <laughs> I mean, these people are so oblivious to the facts and the truth. I don't even know that most of these people realize that. But of course, it's it's. You know, it's easy just to literally fly the flag and support. Of course, you know, I get the sentiment behind that. You want to support the people of Ukraine that are right. now in a in a difficult position. However, that position takes nuance to understand. And I think that's where a lot of these types of conversations are valuable because we can really try to pick apart and understand the full story that there are definitely shades of gray and details to understand about it rather than just this black and white picture that is always presented in, you know, clickbait two second headlines that um, nobody actually takes the time to read. Granted, everybody's busy, but again, I think it's important to to take the time to discuss and, and understand all of these different topics. Yeah, I agree. So, Dave, you know, you recently reposted an interesting chart of the S&P excluding tech, and it's trading at all-time lows. So is this a fair way, in your opinion, to look at the S&P, or is it more just a sign of the times when tech has really taken over so much in today's world? It, it's actually, it's the, the chart is, um, the, the, the line on the chart that's at an all-time low is the ratio of the S&P market weight to the S&P equal weight, right? Hmm. So so there's the the S&P that we look at every day and hear about in the headlines, that's that's a market weighted index. Mm-hmm. And the companies that have the largest percentage of market cap have the highest amount of influence on the directional moves for that index. The equal weight just treats every all 500 companies equally in in terms of their influence on how the index moves. 
And, and so that ratio is now it's actually lower than it was in at the end of 1999 when the tech bubble popped. Mm. Um, and yeah, I think, I mean, I, I, I guess it's kind of like the, the, the uh, government employment report, right? There, there's, there's not just one report, there's two surveys, right? The establishment and the household. And the household is the one that really contains more of the truth about what's going on. But, but um, what that chart tells us is that, and you know, you can dissect it. There, there's, there's like five or six stocks now that are responsible for all of the gains in the S&P 500 since I think it's uh, late December. Because you see the, 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 if you look at just the, not the ratio chart, which keeps going lower because the, the market weight keeps going higher and the equal weight's been going sideways. The equal weight's been going sideways since the end of December. And then that, so that ratio has been going down. Um, what, it, what it tells you is that there's a lot of stocks in the S&P 500 that are well below their 52 week highs or haven't moved or, you know, have been declining since, since late December. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's really just a handful of stocks that are, that are holding up the index. So when someone looks at the S and P 500 and says, Oh, it's at a record high. Well, that's, that's only partially correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah. it's, It's that small concentration that is driving the whole market. And I think right. that's the important exactly. point. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And what's, you know, one of the things about that is in, in terms of, uh, and I think it comes from the Dow theory, is that when you're when you're in a euphoric period for stocks, I, you know, we call it a bubble. Um, when, so when you're in a stock bubble and the market is going through a blow off top, what happens is, is that the bulk of the money starts moving into the stocks that are the largest cap and supposedly the safest to own in the high, you know, the highest quality stocks, because, you know, if you're a money manager, you have to, you have to own something or, or you're going to underperform the index, right? The S and P. So you, they pile into those, into the, into the biggest, largest cap, most liquid stocks, because they're going to be the easiest to get out of when, you know, when the Brown stuff hits the fan. Or so they think, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, and and that's that's it's when this happens, it's usually a sign that the market is in a blow off top, and there's going to be a crash at some point. And it doesn't tell you anything about the timing of it, but I, I, now I'm starting to see. Even I think I saw an article earlier this morning. One of the Goldman Sachs strategists is like, uh, "Time time to pull the ripcord on these stocks because when this thing crashes, it's going to be ugly." Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say it's it's interesting to think about from a an economic driver standpoint as well. If the S&P is, you know, making new all-time highs and you have people that are worried about everything but, you know, really paying attention to the valuation of the stock market and they just see it as you know, I should be invested in this because it keeps going higher. I think that that's an interesting driver for economic activity as well. And this perception that, you know, these companies just keep gaining momentum. Well, I mean, there's, there's a little bit to unpack there. I mean, certainly to the extent that there's some official 
intervention going on helping the stock market go higher or the Fed intentionally says things to drive the stock market higher, it, it, it can be used as a, as a propaganda tool, right? Because, you know, the, the politicians and the media can point to the stock market and say, see, things are, things are going well here, right? But it, it could also backfire and create animosity because there's a lot of people, you know, when you say, I should well, I should be invested in this. There's a lot of people who don't have capital to invest in the stock market. They're using everything they have to to, to keep the lights on and put food on the table. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was a, a report out. Fidelity did a did a survey um, based on what's going on with with the 401ks that are domiciled at Fidelity. And there's there's a I think it was something like 10 percent of 401k people were borrowing money for their 401k, not to buy a house, which you're allowed to do, but mm -hmm. to make ends meet. So, you know, to the extent that people see the stock market going up like this and, you know, some people driving new Ferraris around town because of that, you know, it could, could create animosity. Mm -hmm. But I, I think this is just a theory of mine, because if you remember, the market really started to take off after, was it, I think it was the December FOMC meeting? Was it December? I think it was the, the December meeting. Mm -hmm. And they didn't. They didn't cut rates, but in the in the post FOMC policy release presser with 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 Powell, he he made it clear that the Fed was looking for any reason to pivot, right? And that and that started driving the stock market. I mean, relentlessly higher. And one of my theories is, and you know, who knows? This this could be harebrained, but I mean, I I think he may be trying to reflate the asset bubble as a way of avoiding having to go out and print money to save the banks because the banks are sitting on a powder keg of commercial real estate um credit card credit card uh, delinquencies and default rates are starting to soar starting to see it with with auto loans and and even even uh, residential mortgage delinquency rates are rising and so there, there's going to be a real credit problem in this country if you don't, if the collateral that that is backing the credit um, is is worth a lot less than the amount of credit that's outstanding against it, you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the commercial real estate thing that that's, I mean, that's that's a ticking time bomb, and a lot of these buildings now are worth less than fifty percent of of the real estate debt that's that's attached to them. And I mean, how either you're going to let the banks collapse, or you got to print money to bail them out, right? And and so I um, I think that the Fed intentionally triggered this rally in the stock market with with its tenor at 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 that um, you know that I guess it was the December FOMC meeting, um, and, you know, in in hopes of maybe generating and reflating an asset bubbles, you know, so that all of a sudden the collateral now is is matches uh the the debt that's attached to it um, and, and certainly the the um um held to maturity assets that these banks have that caused the problem and it's still problematic that caused that problem in in march of in, in early 2023 came to a head in march um you know you had you had these big portfolios of of long-term you know, mostly high quality. I mean, some of it's commercial mortgage-backed securities. You know, and who knows how good that stuff really is. But th that portion of these portfolios were trading at, were valued at twenty percent 
of a discount to where they're held on the books. And they had, you know, the banks had a had an asset and liability uh, duration mismatch so that when when people started pulling deposits out of the banks, the, the you know, these these banks couldn't sell enough assets unless they wanted to take massive losses in order to cover those deposits. And, and so um, part of um, what I think Powell achieved was at, at the time, right before that the meeting and the, and the presser, that the tenure was, was about ready to really go over 5% and head to 6%. And now, you know, very quickly it went under 4%. Now we're back over, over um, 4%. But part of, you know, the effect of that was it raised the value of these, these held to maturity portfolios. So, and, you know, it looks like it's probably going to backfire because it, it also looks like inflation is starting to rekindle. So, well, you know, Dave, that, that brings up an interesting point, I think, is trying to, you know, see where, what the consequences of, you know, those issues, whether it be commercial real estate, whether it be mortgages. And I wanted to ask you, you know, you recently wrote about, seeing black swans on the horizon. Does that create more issues within the banking sector because of whether it's multifamily mortgages or commercial real estate? Where do you see those particular black swans kind of possibly manifest? I mean, the commercial real estate black swan is hidden in plain sight, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's people have been talking about it for well over a year. and. It was, you know, it's funny because, I mean, the Fed knows about it too, right? Because they, they took that, you know, if you, if you go back and look at, at past FOMC policy statements, the top of the second paragraph says, that, you know, the, the banking system is strong and robust or whatever, whatever the statement says. Well, at this last meeting, when they released the statement, that sentence was gone, right? <laughs> and and um, uh, New York Community Bank blew up the day before that statement was released. And then, you know, it wasn't widely reported, but there was a bank over in Japan that blew up and it has heavy exposure to U.S. commercial real estate. So the, the Fed knows that commercial real estate is a problem. And I mean, it's, it's, they might be able to kick the can down the road this year. I don't, I don't know if they will for sure, but there's, there's something like, I think it's 117 billion in, uh, commercial mortgage debt that has to be refied this year, but then it jumps up at something like one and a half trillion before the end of 2025. And I don't know that if, if the market is in the same condition as it is now, if, if it's in the same condition over the next 18 months, I don't know that the market's there to refinance most of that commercial real estate. And, and certainly the owners of the buildings don't have the capital to pay off that debt. And so you're going to have, you know, you're, you're basically, it's basically a a freight train barreling down the tracks with, with, with no brakes. And it's just, it's amazing to me that it doesn't get even more discussion because it's so obvious. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the only way for the fed to address that problem is going to be to bail, bail out the banks. You're going to have a huge, and, and people are only looking at the actual debt that's against these buildings. There's also, you know, who knows how much in OTC derivatives that are attached to that debt. And 
you know, it's not these these regional banks that are sitting on the debt that underwrite the OTC derivatives. It's the too big to fail banks that underwrite those derivatives. Those those are the banks that have heavy exposure, you know, and, and they'll say, oh, well, we're, you know, we're we're hedged. Well, you're not hedged because you don't know what who your counterparty is at, at some point because this stuff gets traded around. And it it, it could be, you know, at, at, you don't know which one's going to blow up. And, and then it's like a daisy chain. And that's what we saw in 2008, right? It wasn't wasn't necessarily Bear Stearns per se that that was the reason for the financial crisis, but it certainly lit the fuse. So on the other side of that, though, Dave, you know, we talk about the, let's say, the residential side or, or the commercial side. But how about the federal side? Like how much debt has to be refinanced this year? And is that in, in a way, you know, a different version of QE and supporting the markets? You know, we see that the Fed has run off part of its balance sheet. It has decreased the size of its balance sheet over the last two years. However, when you look at the national debt, it has done nothing but grow. So, you know, where is that money going? And do you see it as another way of supporting the market? I mean, it's it's hard to trace it directly to the stock market, but certainly when the government spends money, borrows money, they borrow money and then they spend it. And the money that doesn't go to the special interests then ends up on Main Street, right? Mm -hmm. So it, it is kind of a an alternative way of, of printing money because a debt a debt instrument when you borrow money, it's it's the same thing as as printing money that you spend until you have to pay it back, right? Because then you have to reach into your pocket and pay that debt back, and you know, and that. And that somehow removes the money from the system that you put in by spending it. Mm -hmm. Well, the federal government never reduces its debt. It's always increasing. So there's there's always, you know, it, it has the same effect as, as you know, actual money. It's, it's just called debt instead. And, and I mean, talk about, I mean, I guess technically something can't be a black swan if you already see it, right? I mean, that's another one that's that's like right. It's front and center in front of us. I think I think the good or a different way of putting it that I've heard. I can't remember which guest mentioned it, but it was it's not a black swan. It's a big gray rhino. So it's it's something that is I think there's an author that brought this up as well. And it is it's a it's a gray, big gray rhino that is slow moving versus a black swan. Right. Or you could just call it, it's the elephant in the room. Everyone yeah. sees it, but no one wants to talk exactly. about it, right? Yeah. <laughs> and that's that's really what it is. And at some point, that, that that in and of itself, forget commercial real estate, forget credit card debt, student loans, auto debt, mm -hmm. uh, residential mortgage debt, that thing's going to blow up at some point. And it, it, that doesn't mean that they're going to let it default, but at some point, the Fed's going to have to print a lot of money to keep to keep that thing going. Because we know that that some of our largest foreign financiers are pulling away from the auctions, and you're seeing that not so much in in the short. They've been funding the government with with T bill issuance because the money market funds are sitting on a boatload of cash. That's what's in the reverse repo facility, and so they've been they've been funding the T bill auctions. But that that's it's only practical up to a point. At some point, they're going to have to start issuing longer dated 
treasury securities at higher, you know, well, not higher rates than T-bills right now. Um, and, and we've seen, you know, auctions over the past few months, anywhere from 10 years out to 30 years mm-hmm. that, that have basically been failed auctions. And the, the banks have had to take them down on their balance sheet and it's caused the rate, the rate on the auction to rise. And in some cases, the Fed's actually put in for some of it. So um, it, it, when you said the Fed's shrinking its balance sheet, that that's actually a, an interesting point, because it, as a percentage of how much it is printed between 2008 and now, they haven't really shrunk it that much. But also, and I, I just kind of happened to, to stumble on this about three or four weeks ago. If you go to the St. Louis Fed chart database, FRED, and you pull up the monetary base. The monetary base, which is bank reserves, coin and currency in circulation, the monetary base has actually gone up over nine percent since the end of March. And since so, the end of March. Oh, yes. so a year ago. Yes. Almost a year ago. And and M2 stopped declining in July. It's actually up marginally since July. The chart that everyone looks at on social media is the year-over-year percentage change in M2. And yeah, of course, that looks horrifying. But in reality, the, the, the money supply has actually increased um, somewhat since, since the end of March. <laughs> yeah, it's, we had this discussion earlier about the growth in GDP and the actual reality of that, right? You see a number, whether it is CPI or you know, taking, let's take the example we spoke about, the growth in the GDP number. If you try to break that apart and understand if you had zero real growth, yet prices or inflation rose by, let's just call it 6%, that ends up being translated to a 6%, let's just call it, rise in GDP. However, if you have people buying half as many goods, then you still end up with that 3%. And you have to pull that number apart to be able to understand that. It's not just necessarily a positive thing all the time that we see this growth, right? It can be a rise in real growth. However, I think at this point, it's more likely, you know, probably a drop in real growth, but a rise in actual prices. And to understand that artifact of the data whether it's job numbers, whether it's GDP, is, you know, people don't have time to pull it apart like you and I do. Yeah, it's, that's, that's a great point because the, particularly the, the government economic reports are fluffed up with a fake inflation number. Mm-hmm. But inflation is what props them up. So like the Census Bureau puts out the retail sales number. Oh, retail sales went up 5% in January. Well, no, they didn't because the stuff that people were buying actually went up at a higher annualized rate than 5%. Mm-hmm. So that means that, you know, if you use a real inflation number, not, not CPI, I mean, even 6% is low. The, the, the number that I default to is, is um, the one that John Williams from from shadowstatistics.com mm-hmm. that he puts out. He he simply just goes in there and calculates CPI the way the government did in 1990 and also 1980. And and if so if you want to be really hardcore and use the 1980 number and I haven't checked it in a, in a 
in, in a few weeks, but it's I think it's around 11 or 12 percent. That would be the way the government would have re- reported the CPI back in 1980. Mm-hmm. And then they started tweaking it and massaging it. I mean, you're talking about if you want to use 12 percent, you're, you're talking about, you know, if, if retail sales nominally went up 5 percent on a real basis. And I, I say that's really kind of tried to how you would convert it into unit sales. Right. If there's real mm-hmm. growth, that means there's an increase in the number of widgets or number of units that get sold. It, it, this translates into a pretty steep decline in unit sales or widget sales or, or real growth. And I think that's that's really what's what's going on in this economy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, I think it takes time to pull that apart and to understand it. And I mean, to your point, there's this sense, I would say, as I've been traveling for the last couple of months here through the States, there's a sense that even I, I had a discussion with somebody that just was working at the gas station. And she brought up the fact to me that there is, in a way, this silent recession that is not being acknowledged. And this is somebody that works at a gas station that is that is telling me this story. And I, it was completely unprovoked. But you know, the sense of the sense from the actual person on the street, from the, you know, the regular people, they see something totally different than what is, what is being reported. And I think that's, that's really important to, to understand. I agree a hundred percent. I mean, I'm just trying to think of what you might've said that triggered her because that, and that's actually an awesome story because it, it kind of illustrates the fact that, you know, the, the common man on the street, us, people who experience real life, we know that, you know, our experience is much different than what these government economic report headline numbers are telling us, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I, I mean, I, I don't have, I'm not affiliated with the Republicans or the Democrats, but you can see the Democrats' popularity in the polls is is like, I mean, it's it's cliff diving. And that to me, that just reflects the fact that that the average person knows that things are a lot tougher than than they're trying to tell us it is. Mm-hmm. And that that's a perfect illustration of that. And I and I think that's probably I bet you could if you drove across the country, you could probably end up having a similar conversation in every state. Mm-hmm. Well, I've uh, I've been doing my best to. So I'll, next time we have this chat. Well, I'll I'll report back then. <laughs> you should get that lady on and do a podcast with her. That would be interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. But that's the thing. Like, there's almost too many of these conversations to to have because, yeah. you know, it ends up happening all the time. As as I have a chat here or there, I think this this is a, a growing sense that, you know, whether it's whether it's the border crisis, whether it's inflation whatever whatever touch point you want to talk about i think there is a growing sense that people understand this a lot better than you know the the narrative that is being pushed yeah and i i agree i think i think people know they're being played by the politicians mm-hmm. and it's not like you know changing the party in in on Capitol Hill or in the White House is going to really make a difference mm-hmm. but it it's it's you know it's it, 
I remember, you know, kind of in the, you know, 70s and 80s and 90s and, and even into, you know, the 2000s, it, it used to take eight years for, for there to be a party change in, in the White House. Now it, it's, it seems to be happening every four years. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, we'll see how, you know, the election this year turns out. But I mean, if it were held today and it was and it was a bona fide unrigged election, I think the Democrats would be annihilated. And again, it's not to say that the Republicans are going to do anything differently to change things. But people, it just, it it reflects the fact that people know that there's something really majorly wrong in this country. And no one in in D.C. is doing anything to try and turn it around. Well, you know, I think that's an interesting point. And it was something I was thinking about earlier is that, you know, we we talked about this idea that there aren't, you know, the the people that you have a choice to vote for are not great candidates, right? And right. I, I was thinking as we, as we were chatting back and forth about that is how do you change that incentive to attract the right people, people that you would actually want to vote for that that are inspiring, that inspire the change that we need to see you know, how do we change that incentive to attract those people? And I think that's, that's ultimately a very difficult question to answer because we, I I think it's unfortunate, but I think in a lot of ways, people come together around crisis or, or something to focus on. At this point, I think the, the, whether it's my country, Canada, whether it's it's the U.S., let's just say the West in general, people are way too divided and don't have, you know, whether it's a common enemy or a common actual, you know, cause to to fight for, to 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 join together to try and solve an issue. I think that uh, unfortunately that that something like that is missing to unite people. I think I don't think that it's fixable at this point. I think we've we've crossed the Rubicon. You know, mm-hmm. We're too far down the rabbit hole. Uh, I mean, to me, the obvious answer is take take money out of politics, take money out of elections, get rid of special interests, and put term limits on congressmen. Mm-hmm. That that to me, that's two simple tweaks that would go a long way to helping it. But that's never going to happen. Mm-hmm. The, the money is just it's just too far infecting the system by by too you know too deeply you're not going to be able to reverse it without some type of collapse reset whether it's you know a civil war whatever it is i don't i don't know you know i'm kind of hoping it that they can kick the can down the road past my lifespan because i don't want to see see you know the other side of it mm-hmm. but um it, it's Again, it's just it's kind of come down to big money, special interests. You know, all these politicians are corrupt, not just Biden, you know, not just Trump. They're all corrupt. You know, they're all on the dole. And so if you have enough money, you can influence policy to whatever you want it to be. And then you repackage it up, put put a propaganda narrative on it and sell it to the people. I think there's, you know, a growing number of people who aren't aren't swallowing that pill anymore. And, you know, that that's where you, you, you probably 
I don't know if there's possible to organize a revolution, you know, the way the French Revolution went down, the way the American Revolution went down, because I think technology preempts that, right? I mean, you get you get people picking up their pitchforks and going down to the state capitol and banging on the doors, and then all of a sudden, you know, you just have drones come over and, and pelling them with rubber bullets. You know, you don't even have to involve actual military personnel to fight mm-hmm. it off. So, I, I mean, I, that I'm, I'm I've been cynical for a long time, but you know, that's that's just the way I see it. And I mm-hmm. think this, what's happening, is just going to play out. You know, like the collapse of Rome did, and then at some point, assuming nukes don't fly, um, and and we're not in the road. I don't know if you read the book The Road. If you haven't, you should read it. Fascinating, and. Um, you know, I think I think that's you know, if we're not headed there, then that's, there is something on the other side that'll that'll change this, and you start over again. You have a reset, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, I just I just unfortunately I think there's a lot of pain that has to be experienced before yes people refocus on you know what's important, whether that is trying to get the debt under control, politicians under control, whatever whatever angle you want to take. Um, I think there's a million different problems that, that need to be addressed. And again, it, it comes down to, you know, the, the average guy, you and me, we're willing to endure a lot to be left alone. You know, <laughs> let us, let us have our jobs if we want it, you know, let us go to the store, buy what we want, you know, raise our families, etc. But only to a point. And again, what's to me, what your encounter with that woman in in Arizona illustrates is the fact that I think people are are starting to they're they're starting to be unwilling to endure it because it's just becoming so ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And I, you know who knows what's going to be the breaking point, but we're definitely headed toward that breaking point. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and look at me like I mean I'm obviously willing to endure it. I'm not out there trying to organize political change or or I don't want to be bothered with it, you know. I just let's go back to the way this country was set up and operated, you know, under the under the constitution. Mm-hmm. You know, and and like I said, get the money out of politics, put on term limits and and go and then we can go on our way. But then you got what's already occurred, you have to fix that. I I think the debt problem is unfixable. Well, you know, kind of to that point, Dave, I wanted to to return to that, you know, this idea that a, a big portion of the S&P is, is overvalued. You know, I don't know that that is, well, obviously it's fixable by a revaluation. But, you know, you write the, the, the short sellers journal. So maybe if we could start by asking, how do you look at companies' valuations to, to determine which ones should be shorted? And when? Well, putting aside companies that are obvious frauds, you know, you, you look at you. You know, I, I start with the financials and go through. I, I don't read what management says on the earnings reports or whatever. I, I go right to the financials mm-hmm. and I look at the footnotes in the financials to try and get a a, a better understanding of of where. I mean, corporations rig their numbers too. And that's what gap accounting allows them to do. And they and they've liberalized gap 
they liberalize it every year and it's 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 way different than the gap accounting standards now are way different than they were when we had the tech bubble they were you know the accounting standards were a little more stringent back then so mm-hmm. now it makes it even easier to fudge the numbers but so so you you, you go through the numbers and you and you look and see where there's accounting games being played and i i try to look at you know how much how much real cash is this company generating every quarter and compare it to its market cap and then compare it to where these ratios, these financial ratios were historically. And I mean, you know, Tesla is a good example. I mean, Tesla's Tesla's trading at, and I, I believe this is the 2024 consensus EPS. It's trading at 90 times consensus EPS. Well, the average, the average um, auto manufacturer, large, you know, competitors of Tesla, and they they all produce EVs now. Uh-huh. Uh, they're they're trading at like you know ten or twelve times projected earnings. So so you know that's a good example of where you've got a company that its valuation metrics and ratios are way out of whack relative to the, the rest of the sector. Uh-huh. And, and what makes it even more egregious is that. Tesla's profitability is is dive bombing over the last year, and it's going to get worse this year because they have to keep cutting prices to keep their their sales volume going. And so it's it's like you know the, the economics that are supporting its business model are, are falling away, and yet it's still got this extremely high valuation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that, think- that's the kind of thing that I look at, and you know, there's like a lot of these tech companies. Um, that are trading with absurd valuations, they 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 don't make money. They never will make money, and they never have made money. I mean, Snap's a good example, and we saw what happened with Snap two weeks ago after it reported its earnings. Its, its stock got bombed for thirty five percent, and it's still overvalued. Mm-hmm. And you go in there and you look at its financials, and it's like, holy crap! This thing this thing is burning cash at a rate of a billion dollars a year right now. And that the rate at which it's burning cash has been increasing for at least the last three years. Mm-hmm. And so, but, and yet it still has this massive stock market cap, market cap. And, you know, I basically, and I put it in my short sellers journal two weeks ago. And I said, you know, essentially this, this stock isn't, maybe it was a little more than two weeks ago. Th- this stock is maybe at best worth the cash per share on its balance sheet, which at the time was like two 45 per share or something like that. And that's going to go down this year. Mm-hmm. And it's going to continue generating massive losses and, and burning capital. And, and so that that's the type of thing that I look at. I'm like, this, this stock is eventually going to zero. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you buy long-term way out of the money puts, you're probably going to make money on it. So, you know, does this really present to you an opportunity to see this market really rebalance back to rewarding companies that produce the raw materials that much of the economy and and the tech sector um, still relies upon. I, you know, it's, you're going to have to have a, a market crash to cleanse it. I mean, just like we had in, in 2000, I mean, you had these dot-com companies trading with multi-billion dollar market caps and a lot of them didn't even have any revenues and never, you know, then most of them were out of business by t- 2003. Um, 
it's not that extreme right now because you know all these overvalued tech companies do have revenues and you know many of them produce a fair amount of of cash flow and income but they're still overvalued relative to historical valuation metrics so you're you're going to have to have a some type of crash you know and i i, I don't like to use the word reset but you you, you got to cleanse out all the excess and go back to old you know old fashioned i say old fashioned old fashioned mm-hmm. investing standards where you're looking at the business model you're looking at you know the market the market potential and all of that's just been blown way out of proportion there was there was some idiot from Morgan Stanley on CNBC 2 weeks ago and she started talking about price, a price to innovation ratio she said oh well I'm educating people not to look at price earnings ratios but price to innovation it's like what the hell is that 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 that's <laughs> That that's an empty metric. It means nothing. But they're trying to come up with some type of concept to justify the high valuations on these tech companies. Mm-hmm. You know, and it was the same type of it's just old wine in a new bottle. It was <laughs> the same type of crap that was going on in the late 90s. You know, mm-hmm. back then it was like, oh, well, these dot coms, you know, you got to look at how many clicks they're getting on their website every day because that'll that tells you the potential for it to generate revenues. No, well, okay. How come most of them are, are no longer in existence then? <laughs> so, Dave, how important of a place do you think within this, you know, return to value, if, if you want to call it that, how important of a role in that space do those gold miners occupy? Are they viewed by the rest of the market as only a luxury type item? You know, I... I think most of the market doesn't even pay attention to to gold mining stocks or precious metals mining stocks. If you if you wanted to put traditional Graham and Graham and Dodd valuation analysis on it, they're they're true value stocks right now because the the good, well run gold and silver producing companies are making money. They're making money hand over fist, even even with cost inflation. You know hurting their cost structure, they're still earning a nice spread between what it costs to produce the gold or silver and what they can sell it for. And, and they're, they're just selling at, at just completely depressed values relative to the rest of the market. Mm-hmm. And, and at some point, and we saw this happen in, in 2000, late 2008, at some point, you're going to get large mutual funds that are like, <laughs> and it may take, you know, a, a tech crash for this to happen because you know again i just want to circle back really quickly what drives investing now isn't isn't anything to do with fundamentals it's momentum chasing and that's all it is and and, and you know gamma squeezes it's 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 um it's technology and derivatives acting on the market and and just you know forcing prices higher well it's, it can only last so long but at some point, there's going to be some large mutual funds that start looking at these gold mining stocks and say, well, geez, look at how profitable this thing is. I mean, there's and I don't know if they're going to end up doing it, but Newmont's talking about increasing its dividend rate to six percent. Mm-hmm. Think about that, you know, and they're throwing off plenty of free cash flow to support it. You know, there, there's another stock that that I follow and recommend and I own B2 Gold and their dividend rates over five and a half percent. And they're throwing off plenty of cash. They had a hiccup, a one quarter hiccup last quarter 
at, at one of their mines over in West Africa. But that's it's if you read through and, and do the analysis, it's like, oh, well, this is this is a one quarter thing. This will be fixed. And and, you know, the, the gold that they weren't able to produce and sell this quarter, it's just going to be pushed out to next quarter or or the, the next six months. And so, you know, its numbers will bounce back. But it's paying a five and a half percent dividend. Where can you get that in the S&P 500 or the Dow? I don't think you can. So so, Dave, what effect did that end up having on their their share price when they had that pickup? Got hammered. <laughs> so I think that goes to, you know, illustrate the point of how competitive the market this is and how based on momentum a lot of the market is. Because if you like you say, if you have a hiccup and you are transparent about what happened and your investors can understand that, that's great. However, if it's not continuously just driving the share price up and up, then yeah, it's that the the shares are going to get sold off. And it's such an interesting point that the fundamentals of the company didn't change at all. No, the fundamentals of the company are going to keep getting better. Mm -hmm. They've got a gold mine up in up in Canada. And I think it kicks into production either late this year or early next year. And that's, I mean, it's going to add something like over 200 ounces of gold to its its production. Mm-hmm. You know, Fortuna Silver is a great example. I mean, its stock just got annihilated after its last earnings report because it's, you know, it came out and made some statements that it had to make with respect to one of its mines. It's, it's a, it was one of its, uh, used to be its flagship mine down in Mexico. And they said, well, we, we may, you know, we may have to start implementing our mine closure plan on this because right now we don't have the resources to support this. Mm-hmm. But if you call the company and talk to them and say, oh, well, we've just discovered another vein on the property and we still need to drill it out more. But if it is what it thinks it is, it's going to extend the mine life of this mine. And, and you know, and it's, it's, it's silver production. Um, Fortuna is, is generating quite a bit of free cash flow now every quarter it's buying back its shares it's paying down its debt and it trades it like off the top of my head like a 25% discount to its book value and the book value is 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 probably understated because that's the depreciated value of its assets right mm-hmm. well it's got a couple of gold mines that are worth way more than where they're carried on their books so that, that that's that's an example of a classic value stock, and and at some point the market will discover these things, and we're going to go into a you know a rip roaring bull cycle in the precious metal stocks again. And I, I can't tell you when that's going to happen. No one can tell you. And if they do say that they can tell you by looking at their charts and their crystal balls, you know, they're kidding themselves and they're kidding you if you believe them. But it, it is going to start at some point. So Dave, why do you think it is that? the the rest of the market has not rewarded companies like that for having you know a, a clean balance sheet for throwing off free cash flow do you think that there was after the last boom there was mismanagement and it got into this area where you know it started to crash and and people hated it and and that's a big you know catalyst let's say to this this time of underinvestment. And then now that people have forgotten about it for so long, that has forced 
these companies to clean up their act, to clean up their their management practices, their operational practices, and get back into a position where they are disciplined and good stewards of shareholder capital. And that once that is recognized, that that ends up kind of bringing money back into the sector. Uh, eventually it will. And what you just described, I mean, that's been going on at, at these at the large mining companies in terms of um, fixing their cost structure, et cetera, cleaning up their operations. That's been going on for probably the last eight or nine years. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and there's nothing they can do about inflation in terms of how it affects the cost structure. But if 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 they can't, if the price of gold and silver can't, you know, it has to remain above the cost of production. Otherwise, you're going to shut down your mine and that'll pull supply and that from the market. And that'll, you know, that'll fix the problem over time. I, I think the biggest part of the problem is just the, the, the size of the audience that is looking at and investing in these things right now. Everyone wants to chase the tech, the tech sector, right? You, 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 you want to, you know, most investors are like fruit flies and it, you know, they're, they're, they have the attention span of a fruit fly and they, you know, if it's moving, they want to jump on it and ride it, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's, that's what's passes for investing now. But at, at some point that, that will change. And also I, I think another point here is that in even, even press metal sector investors don't fully trust the price of gold and silver. And they, you know, and they know that it's manipulated and in the back of their minds, they're worried that the, that the people who are doing the, the price controlling are going to be able to do that forever. Well, they're not going to be able to do that forever. We saw that end, you know, for a few years in 2008, right? We had a, just a rip roaring three year rally in the sector, you know, and, and a lot of these stocks, a lot of the big stocks doubled and tripled. A lot of them, the micro cap risky junior stocks, you know, were 20 baggers, mm-hmm. you know, and I think the pendulum will swing back the other way and we'll get to that point. I just don't know when. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Dave, what do you see as the, the fundamental drivers that continue to to act as strong tailwinds for the for the gold and silver prices at this point? Are they are they weakening? Are they getting stronger? You know, how, how do you see this, this big picture driver fundamental view for the metals prices? Well, I, we talked about the drivers for, for most of this conversation. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, all the black swans that are maybe not black swans because we know they're there. We just don't want to acknowledge them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the types of the, the types of fundamental factors that you would use to make your decision to invest in gold and silver and in mining companies, mm-hmm. you know, um, inflation. I mean, inflation is much higher than the official number. Mm-hmm. Um, fiscal irresponsibility. I don't think you could get any more fiscally irresponsible than the U.S. government is right now. Mm-hmm. Um, political, political chaos. We got political chaos has been fomenting for years in this country. Geopolitical risk, geopolitical mm-hmm. chaos. I mean, look at <laughs> this country's fighting wars on two fronts, you know, and it, th- that fact really hasn't been reflected in in people's desire to own fist. Well, at least in the Western Hemisphere. I mean, the Eastern Hemisphere continues to buy physical gold and silver hand over fist, and I and I think that's a big part of of what's um, keeping. A, a 
floor of support underneath the price of gold, right? I mean, it's 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 been above two thousand. It's held above two thousand for quite some time now. You know, plus or minus. I mean, there's it's had some really brief dips down to the high eighteen hundreds. Mm-hmm. But um, I mean, if you look at a three year chart, I mean, it's bouncing between call it eighteen hundred and twenty one hundred. And I think once I think what it's going to take for this sector to get the type of attention that it'll eventually get is I think gold needs to break above 2100 sustainably. And silver needs to start heading into the high 20s and, and move higher from there. And I think that that'll get people excited again. Mm-hmm. And I also think I think one of the most important fundamental factors that most people aren't aware of, well, the hardcore precious metal sector investors are, is the amount of of physical demand for gold and silver, not so much in the West, but in the Eastern Hemisphere. I mean, the central banks in the in the Eastern Hemisphere, this will be the third year in a row if the rest of the year plays out the way January did, where there's been a, a new record amount of gold accumulation. Um, and it's being driven by the, the, the Eastern Hemisphere central banks. And at some point, you're, you're just, the, the physical market's just gonna keep moving the price higher well, and it won't matter how much paper the banks throw at the price, you know, and it's kind of similar to what we saw in, in 2008 to 2011. And silver is is in a supply demand deficit right now. And at some point, that's going to um, greatly affect the price of silver. And I don't, I don't know how closely you watch the metals on a daily basis, mm-hmm. but probably, I don't know, at least the last month. Even though silver is nowhere near its all-time high, whereas gold is, you know, flirts with an all-time high almost every day or every week, silver has been pretty bouncy lately. And I think part of that is the fact that that there is it the, the market is in supply deficit relative to demand. Mm-hmm. And and that's that's another really important fundamental factor that that should drive the price higher over time. I want to go back to, you know, you, you mentioned the, the geopolitical factors right now that, that have driven gold up. Does the, you know, the, let's call it the fear trade with many of these geopolitical events in the last two years here make for a sustainable rally or is that just more headline driving events? It, it's certainly... You know, like like when the Middle East spun out of control recently and the price of gold spiked up. Mm-hmm. And then within a couple of weeks, it came right back down. It 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 seems to be affecting the the price on a short-term basis, but then people lose interest. It, it disappears from the media. I mean, how much reporting have we seen recently on what's going on in the Middle East or what's going on in Ukraine? Not much. And so it's kind of like one of these things out of sight, out of mind. So if you say to yourself, oh, I jumped into GLD because of geopolitical risk last week, but it's not doing anything, so I'm going to sell it. And, uh, you know, I'm not hearing any negative headlines anymore. And I think that's a big part of it. I, I, I think, I mean, I think geopolitical risk is a factor, but I don't think, you know, I, I think just basic fundamental economics is is going to be, you know, what really drives the price of gold and silver going forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, I think the, the inescapability of that math equation 
ends up being the the ultimate driver, right? Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. And you know, going back to our point about the S and P and and people that just chase momentum, I think in in a lot of ways the the Fed has ended up driving that behavior, right? Because all of a sudden, no about it, you're this this cheap money and this search for yield has driven everybody right up to the the high end of the risk curve um without you know really understanding what what risk they're undertaking at that point so to unfortunately i think to to have that awakening or or to to be awakened by that reality is going to be you know cause pain but at the other on the other hand you know Unfortunately, the the Fed has driven that that behavior. Yes, um, I agree with that one hundred percent. And that 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 goes back to really Greenspan was the one who really got that ball rolling in a real way. Mm-hmm. You know, with 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 and, and he was able to do it just with you know what he said, not his actions. Um, one point I wanted to to make about gold in that you know most most people don't look at it this way but it's 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 what it is with gold it and, and it's why it's not sexy it, it, it's not that the price of gold rises it's that the value of the currency that's used to buy an ounce of gold depreciates mm-hmm. and you don't see it on an everyday basis but if you look at it over time it becomes pretty obvious and i did the numbers i don't know maybe 6 to 9 months ago for an article i wrote if you go back to just 1971, and that's not a, it's not, the reason I'm doing that is because that's when the world went completely off the gold standard, mm-hmm. you know, and back then, around that time, you know, my father bought a house for our family and I, it was, it's a nice house. I think he paid 45000 or $50,000 for it, you know, 4,000 square foot house in a good neighborhood. And today, that same house probably worth close to a million dollars. It's not that the house, the value of the house went up. It's the, it's that the value of each dollar used to pay for that house went down. Right. And if you then do the same exercise with the price of gold, and again, these numbers are, they're, they're not exact, but so say back in 1971, it would have taken, call it 900 ounces of gold to buy that house. Now, it might take 300 ounces of gold to buy that house. And that illustrates, and those, those numbers aren't, they're, they're not arithmetic, but mm-hmm. it, it illustrates, it takes a lot less number of ounces of gold to pay for that same house now than it did in 1971. And that illustrates the fact, you know, that that gold holds its value over time, whereas the fiat currencies don't. And kind at some like- point, that'll make sense to people. Mm-hmm. Harkening back to Weimar Germany and and people buying what was an entire blocks of houses for like an ounce or two of gold. Yeah, exactly. Or they were they were you know you heard you heard the adage that people were wheeling around marks in mm-hmm. in currency in wheelbarrows. Yeah, and the wheelbarrow was worth more than the currency that it was carrying. But you're not going to trade the currency for a bag of groceries. You're going to give them the the funny money, the wheelbarrow, <laughs> and I, I think we probably probably see something like that start to occur in this country. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I mean, again, unfortunately, that that is going to cause a lot of pain. But uh, at this point, I, I agree with you. I think it's unes- unescapable, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, Dave, I want to thank you for a, a wide-ranging and, and interesting conversation here today. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with us before we wrap up? I mean, there right now, I know, and especially from the emails I get from my subscribers, mm-hmm and comments that I see in social media, the sentiment towards the precious metal sector is really negative. And this is kind of interesting because I had one of my subscribers and he, he emailed me and he was whining, you know, when are these stocks going to start performing? This whole sector sucks. And I, I said, well, actually, why don't you pull up a, a two-year chart of gold? Uh-huh. You know, gold's been in an uptrend since late 2022. And believe it or not, it may not feel like it, but GDX has also been in an uptrend since then. Now, if you pull it up a five-year chart, then GDX is below where it was in in August of 2020. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that at some point it's it's not going to get back up there and, and rise above that. I think it will. Mm-hmm. And my point is, is that I mean, you're never going to find a bottom in this in any sector, in any stock. But I think if you are interested in investing in this sector for the reasons that we discussed and the reason that you feel confident investing in this sector, now's probably a pretty good time to start wading in to, to, to the sector and start accumulating these stocks. And you don't do it all at once. I see subscribers who pile in all at once to a stock and then they complain when it goes down 10%. And I'm like, well, did you save some money to average down? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and and that's really the way you really need to invest like that in generally, but especially with this sector. Mm-hmm. And at some point, this this sector is going to take off. And again, like I said, I don't know when it is, but you know, I don't know that they can push it down much lower than than it's already pushed in terms of the stocks. I mean, gold's near an all time high still, mm-hmm. and yeah, at I... some point, silver will play catch up. And mm-hmm. so. I would just like to say, you know, if, you know, if people, people are like feeling bummed out about the sector right now, just, just sit, sit tight and know that we're right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting doing an interview last week with Chris Rutherglen and he just, he analyzes just the, the bare data. He's an engineer by nature. So it's very mathematic. And, you know, the, the one thing that jumped out off the chart to me is, understanding gold's reactivity to slashing interest rates as as soon as they start cutting interest rates it seems that that is a major driver for gold as well so considering you know whether they are able to to keep interest rates higher for longer you know what the actual timing of that pivot the fed pivot is going to be that remains as a as a major driver for the gold price as well and I think I think that that is only only a matter of time before that that cycle reverts. I, I agree with that. And to your point, I just wanted to add what's a, a more important factor is the printing press, mm-hmm. because just slashing interest rates isn't going to fix the commercial real estate problem. It's not going to fix the government debt problem. At some point. The Fed's either going to have to let it collapse or start printing money again. And I know they know that. Mm-hmm. And and part of their reluctance right now, because they also know the economy sucks. They see better numbers than we do. They see the real numbers. Mm-hmm. 
And part of the reason why I think they are are jawboning or or posturing on interest rates is to support the dollar. Because if you notice when, you know, after the last FOMC meeting and, and Powell presser, the dollar took off because it, it was about ready to go off a cliff. And they need the dollar to, to remain resilient in order to keep foreign foreign treasury debt buyers at the table, right? Because if you're a foreign treasury debt buyer, you're not going to buy treasuries if you think that the U.S. dollar is going to go a lot lower, which it will eventually anyway, because you're going to lose you're going to lose money just on the currency exchange rate if the dollar goes lower. So I think that's a big part of their motive right now in terms of dictating their policy is trying to keep the dollar supported. Mm-hmm. But at some point, they're they're either going to have to open up the floodgates on the printing press. And that, like I said, that's an even more powerful factor influence on the price of gold and silver than cutting interest rates is. So and, and we know it's coming. It's just it's just a matter of time. Yeah. Well, Dave, again, I want to I want to thank you for for the discussion today. Of course, for anybody that wants to hear more of Dave's research and and check out some more of his work, that's all available at investmentresearchdynamics.com, right? Correct. Perfect. And of course, excellent Twitter follow as as well, INVRES Dynamics. Just short for Investment Research Dynamics. Dave, thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate the chat. Thank you, Tom. I really enjoyed it also. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests on this show are not compensated for their appearance. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. Do not base any investment decisions on the information contained. To view our full disclaimer, please visit our website.